we didn't get a chance to talk about the six grams of dietary fiber, which are present in an average sized pear, that's been shown by MD Anderson research to improve your gut microbiome and actually make the difference of whether you're going to survive melanoma, getting an immunotherapy or not, or the bacteria acromantia, which can be grown by drinking pomegranate juice or conquered grape juice or cranberry juice that seems to be present in every patient who is a positive responder. They benefit. They, the tumor is wiped out by your immune system in people who get checkpoint inhibitors for their cancer because we don't know who responds and who doesn't respond. We're beginning to find out that what you eat and how it happens to change the ecosystem of your gut bacteria looks like you can actually make a big difference. And that big difference could be life and death. And so that's something I'd love to come back to talk to you more Please. about. Please. Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist, also known as the OncDoc on social media, where we try to educate about things that look kind of scary and, and people want to know information about, but it's kind of hard to find. And for that very reason, I'm super stoked, yes I said it, stoked, about the guest that I have today. It's Dr. William Lee, who has been extraordinary on that education front, both on news media, he's published, he's a New York Times bestseller, he went to Harvard, Mass General, he talks about things that are complicated that all of a sudden sound not complicated, and the main thing that we're going to discuss today that I'm very excited about that I get so many questions on on social media is diet and nutrition as it relates to cancer, cancer risk, health. He's done it. He knows it. This is what he lives and breathes. And I couldn't be more excited. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Sanjay. It's a real pleasure. We had great discussions before we even started recording this uh, podcast. But I have to talk about you know, your book recently, which is uh, Eat to Beat Your Diet. And I thought it was a very interesting concept. Because you've talked about, which we'll get to in a second, you know, a lot of different foods that can help it's, it's kind of neat that cardiovascular disease risk and cancer risk generally are like the same category in the sense of things you can do, right? Exercise and working out and health and, and some of the things that you eat. What I thought was super interesting was on eating to beat your diet. I was like, that's an interesting term. Is it, was it said right? And it was. What you're saying is there is a way where you can actually, in a way, affect your metabolism to be like what it was when I was younger. There's something called good fats that can actually help you get into better shape than, you know, the kind of fat, fat is bad, fat is bad. I love that you're, with everything you do, very open-minded um, because I don't like this culture of naysayer from medicine and then, you know, patients feel attacked and it's like, just give us more is what they're asking for. So tell me what inspired you to really look closer, and I think I know the answer because of, uh, I don't know, evolution and history and all kinds of like, you know, things that, it, that have evolved. But what made you think, is there a way we can do this smarter? Given in America, it's hard to always have these like beautiful packaged meals and all that stuff. Yeah, well, you know, I think a little bit of my background will help you understand this. So um, I am a physician and I, I do internal medicine. So that means that I take care of young and old, men and women, healthy and sick. And you know, the thing that actually drew me to medicine, which, by the way, is the root, obviously, of oncology, is, you know, what is the basis of health? And it's something that I'm, I'm sure you, like me, when we were in medical school, we were, we were inundated, flooded. The fire hose was sprayed at us um, with information about diseases. So we became very, very fluent in the language of disease. But in fact, we um, were almost deprived of actually teaching about what is health. And so, Disease, I mean, health is not just the absence of disease. It's a result of our bodies working to be able to maintain really good function. And that's what I think patients really want. If you have cancer, you want to get back to health. 
You don't want to think about your cancer. Oncologists think about cancer, but the patient, the cancer patient thinks about health. How do I get back to shore? And so I think that, you know, it's a really important thing to communicate to doctors, but it's also important to communicate to patients that our bodies are hardwired in order to be able to actually maintain that health. And so the question, of course, is, you know, um, a, a, a woman who d d uh, discovers a breast slump and is diagnosed with uh, breast cancer or somebody who has blood in their stool who has colon cancer, all right, the question inevitably comes up, whether it's asked or not, well, how did I get cancer? Why me? Right. And, and actually, what's interesting as a, as a scientist and, a, and, and as, a, as a doctor, I can tell you, I've long been interested in a related question that is sort of the opposite end of that, which is how come we don't get cancer more often? How come everybody doesn't Ooh. get cancer? All right. And, and, and that's basically what researchers do. Right. Like we ask that question. It seems so obvious and yet hasn't been answered. And by, by asking that and saying, how do we get at that? So why don't we get cancer more often? Well, the secret actually is hardwired in our body. So when we're born, we are hardwired with what it takes to live a what's called normal lifespan as healthy as possible. We don't get infected that much. We um, our, our blood flow works pretty well. We don't develop um, visible cancers. And, and when we're actually exposed to the toxins in the environment, right? Like who's not exposed to off-gassing from carpets and rugs, um, petrol fumes at the gas station, barbecue grill, you know, when you're, when you're out there. I mean, all those things are harmful. I mean, and frankly, you wash your hair with shampoo and you brush your teeth. All the chemicals that are used in modern society are insults to our system. And the reason we don't get sick more often is because our body is hardwired with defenses that actually sort of act like swashbucklers. They are actually able to fence off um, and, and, and ward off all these insults that, that, that attack us. I can tell you an example, like basically something you eat that actually might clog your arteries. Well, our body's pretty good at keeping them, keeping the blood flowing, growing new blood vessels when we need actually better blood flow. What about um, aging and our organs start to break down? Well, you know what, when our organs degenerate, and this is it was controversial, you know, when I went to medical school, no longer controversial. We know humans have the capacity to regenerate from the inside out. We've got stem cells that are circulating. When we're born, we got about 70 million extra stem cells that were left over, which is, by the way, when you actually clamp the cord and cut it and you get um, uh, stem cells, you know, umbilical cord stem cells for future cancer therapy, just in case you need it, honestly, that's the leftover stuff the extra cans of paint when your body was done creating all of its stuff it's got some about 70 million extra ones and basically when we're born these stem cells get stuffed into our bone marrow they get stuffed into our fat into our skin and we use them we use them to regenerate as we get older now all this has to do with with cancer because you know th this idea about by the way i'm going to say one more thing about the gut microbiome which is the new frontier you know they didn't teach this in medical school now they should be teaching in medical school but we hardly yeah. know everything that we need to know about it but we do know i mean and think about it uh sanjay when we were in med school right how much time did they teach us about how bad bacteria was almost all the time. almost never yeah right uh, how well, bad you said I mean, how bad they are right so basically right. bad bacteria there's cluster yeah, yeah there's pseudomonas like 
the concept of good bacteria or right. I get so many questions on my social media. Well, what about my gut health? Gut health? I'm like, look, I don't, I don't know. I know when you have C. diff, but we just, and they get frustrated. And I think it builds a little mistrust like in communities, but really the answer was what, what you're going to tell us is like, we're learning. And it's yeah. like, whoa, you know, every comment where I'm like, oh, that's just, you know, unfair kind of criticism of the medical community. I'm like, actually, there's a lot of merit there. And that's exactly what you're alluding to. The good, the good gut. We, we are, we, and we're learning about it, right? So basically, you know, we've got 39, we got about 40 trillion cells in the human body. We've got 39 trillion bacteria. So we're 50-50, all right? There's the human self and there's the bacteria self. And by the way, you know, it's quite amazing, like this almost one-to-one uh, relationship. And so it's kind of crazy that doctors are taught to kill, must kill bacteria, must prescribe antibiotics to kill bacteria. I will tell you the average person, most of the bacteria that they encounter in out the, throughout their lives are good bacteria. Most of that good bacteria lives in your gut. Most of it in the last part of your gut called the cecum. And by the way, right next to the healthy gut bacteria in the wall of your intestines, okay, is your immune system. And we know that when you treat your gut bacteria well, the gut bacteria treats your immune system well and helps your immune system fight cancer. Profound. We'll come back to talk about this in a second about what we're learning about diet, microbiome, gut bacteria, immune system, and being able to survive your cancer if you're getting immunotherapy. It's, it's mind-blowing, actually, how powerful this actually is. DNA. We know that our DNA is our genetic code. You know, and we think about that, you know, right, like Watson and Crick and, you know, the, 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 it's our genetic code. It's like the CSI, right? Like that's what DNA is all about. I'm trying to figure out who done it. Well, actually, there's a hardwired part of our DNA that actually is our health defense system. Because think about it. If you go to a tanning salon, okay, you're definitely damaging your DNA. If you go to the beach and get a sunburn, you're also damaging your DNA. But, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, and the sun is shining in through your window, you're also damaging your DNA, okay? And the amazing thing is how come then you're not developing a skin cancer all the time on one side of your body? And the reason is because your DNA is hardwired to fix itself. It's got an error, it'll fix it, okay? And think about like, you know, a cobbler that fixes your shoes. Imagine your DNA is filled with these cobblers that are every time there's a problem, it just automatically, you know, nails a better heel on, um, uh, replaces the shoelaces. That's part of what our DNA does. It's quite remarkable. And, and because cancer can be caused by DNA mutations, this fixing, this fixability. Now, people talk about antioxidants. Antioxidants is like the, the missile shield that you send up to try to block the incoming. But actually, if the missile hits the ground, your DNA can still fix itself, which is really, really important, which is why, partly why we don't get cancer more often. And then, of course, your, uh, our immune system, you know, our immune system, again, in medical school, and, and you know, I'm saying this for, to, you know, to your audience, because if you think about how doctors are educated, it might give everyone a little bit more um, understanding and hopefully a little empathy of why it is that we have to, we as doctors have to keep learning, okay? And, and the doctor you want is the one that is continuously learning. It doesn't actually pretend that they know everything and is realizing that like every single day we wake up is another opportunity for us to digest some new bit of information. So the the immune system used to be, it defends us against viruses and bacteria, right? Okay, now we realize that that's, that's what it does to, to help defend us against invaders from the outside world. 
but our immune system probably plays an even bigger role in defending us from invaders inside our body, and those are cancer cells. So this health defense system, this five things I talked about, our circulation, stem cells, gut microbiome, DNA repair mechanisms, um, and our immune system, they really are our shields. So when it comes to nutrition, so much emphasis is placed on, you know, the to character assassinate foods that are dangerous to eat. And yeah, okay, there's a lot of foods out there that probably aren't so good for our health. And we know what some of those are. But honestly, what the exciting part to me, as somebody who actually enjoys the history of food, I like to cook. I like to taste different foods. You know, I mean, there's it's, a, it's an amazing world out there if you're kind of a foodie and you like to uh, have your taste buds lit, lit up. Yes. We, the research is now showing there are foods that we can actually eat that actually allow us to enjoy our, our, uh, our not only enjoy the food so we don't have to fear our food, but actually support, raise our shields by popping up our health defenses. And that is one of the things that we can do before we get cancer. That is something we can do after we successfully are treated for cancer to prevent that recurrence, that watchful waiting. Look, only the doctor is watching. You should be on that, you know, training, okay, getting your health defenses into shape so that it's not going to come back, right? I mean, so again, this is like, this is part of the shape shifting. And then, you know, um, the latest thing I've been doing that I think is one of the most mind blowing things is really looking at the role of your health defenses and your metabolism, right? Hmm. So it turns out that. Our metabolism is just simply put how our body uses energy, how our body uses fuel. Okay. Of course, you and I, you know, over a cup of coffee, we can exchange all kinds of complicated mumbo jumbo lingo, scientific lingo about metabolism. But the average person who's going to be watching this is like, the heck is a metabolism? Well, it's pretty simple, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. And the simple thing is it's how your body uses energy. Where does your energy come from? Well, think about it. If you think of your body as a, having an engine, just like your car, that you have to actually put fuel into it so that there's energy. The same way that a car's engine needs energy from fuel that you go to the gas station, that's how our body works. Now, how does our body's metabolism, metabolic engine work? Well, you know, when just like a car, when your fuel gauge says you are almost out of gas, you got to pull over to the filling station and you actually have to fill up. When our body's energy levels are down, we got to sit at the dinner table and we got to grab something to eat in order to fuel up. So it's kind of the same thing, the same way we actually think about that. Now, in a car, when you actually have the, you put in quality fuel, you're, you're going to protect your engine. It's going to run longer and better. Same deal when it comes to the food that we eat, which provides energy for us, the better quality fuel we put into our body, the longer our engine, our body's engine is going to last. Now, that's one part of it. So what's what's quality fuel versus poor quality fuel? That's one question I think is really amazing to ask because good quality fuel actually makes our energy run better, stronger, faster, gives us more energy, and, and it also raises up our health defenses. So good metabolism supports our health defenses. On the other hand, if you put bad quality fuel in your car, you know, your engine, you'll be able to drive down the street for sure. You might even be able to take a couple of road trips. Eventually, over time, if you keep on loading crappy fuel into your tank, you're going to wear down your engine. And it's just not going to last as long as you would like it to, right? So this is choices you make. There's so many things I want to touch on that you said previously, but on this concept, 
the concept, I remember when I was, I, I had this thing where I wanted to biohack in an exercise physiology way working out. So I think I accomplished, you know, the thing that really doesn't matter at the end of the day, but the aesthetic, like, you know, how to get muscle mass the quickest. And I focused and made sure I got the proper amount of uh, proteins in. But I never went as far as the macros, like like the actual, like the rest of it. I was just like, well, this is working. I'm getting enough protein to rebuild my muscle. What you're talking about, is, is that relating to like why it's not maybe the short term like gains but how those that macro kind of uh rearrangement when uh when people that are working on are saying it's very important also to know how many carbs and like it's not just the protein but it's the constellation and especially based on your needs is that playing a similar relevance in this conversation or is it more just uh... absolutely it's not just putting uh, uh, fuel in the tank of your car. It's the engine that you actually put in. It's the oil you put in the engine. It's how you actually maintain your brakes. When it comes to nutrition, there's all these different dimensions that all contribute their own merits to right. how well the performance of your car is. Now, you know, one of the things I write about in my new book called Eat to Beat Your Diet, which by the way is a trick title because although the word diet's in the title, it's not a diet book. It's an anti-diet book right. that teaches you how you can actually get to better health by improving your metabolism without ever having to go on a severe, harsh diet. I That's the key that. thing. It's, like it's, it's just basically rearranging what you're doing and being more calculated and smart about it. I thought that was really neat. And that was one thing that I, that I had kind of discovered a few years back when I read yours, you know, your bits. And it's, it's exactly that. It's like, there is so much more than this concept of calories in, calories out. Like, right. That may pertain to like just weight, but we're, we're, we're talking about here, and what I love that you, what you said is like, what is health? What is the basis of health? When you're talking about looking out for your future self, like, you, you know, I said, I left internal medicine in part because I empathize a lot for back pain and arthritis and these kind of things that I'm like, I feel so bad and we don't have a magic bullet, but obviously the things you and I are talking about, not just on, on weight and, and the stress on these things, but just inflammation stuff and your overall, that long haul, that basis of health that's where you can get very tailored down, I think almost like in an oppressing way, which is never not the right word, on, on how and what you're doing and not just like the calories and not just the macros and, and all of that stuff, right? And that yeah, there, is I mean, a, there is a true science to it. What, yes, absolutely. And a lot of that science, by the way, comes from these billions of dollars that were invested to do drug development and along that path. And I've been I've been on that path for for many years to develop new cancer treatments and new treatments for complications of diabetes and even vision loss. The the along those ways, you know, like the science that gets generated is really pretty awesome. What I've tried to do is to take the discoveries that have been made that support the development of new medicines, but turn that into well, how do we prevent disease or how do we complement the uh, medical treatments so that we can actually do something for ourselves. I mean, think about it. Sick care is what we do in the doctor's office or in a hospital, but health care is what we do for ourselves between visits to the mm. clinic or the hospital. And, and health care is really, it can't be um, outsourced to the doctor. Health care is what we actually do to and for, and that's the key. We do for ourselves. It's, it's a favor we're doing to ourselves. Every choice you make, really has a has the opportunity to support your health, raise the shields, or potentially take down your shields. And and what I try to get tell people is don't get too stuck on doing one thing like a robot. Like that's not human nature. You gotta be realistic. But most of the time, if you do good things to yourself most of the time and your shields are mostly up, 
you can withstand a couple of hits to it. You know, you want to go do something that's not so great for you. You're, you're going to bounce back. Don't worry about it. But let's talk about cancer for a second, because I think cancer is, uh, is something that's easy to misunderstand. And like, I want to talk about food, but I mean, from a science perspective, here's something that most people don't realize. If you boil it down to the simplest possible explanation, cancer is uh, composed of cells that have gone wild. Normal cells aren't doing the same thing they're designed to do. They have a mutation and those mutations allow them to go crazy. You know, it's kind of like kids on spring break, you know, and, and, and they just go, they run around wild. And so they start to, um, uh, they're unyoked. They, 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 they grow, they invade, they can spread, they can do all kinds of harmful things and they mess you up. Okay. So the question is how often do we get cancer? The answer is probably all the time, including children. All right. And, and all of us are forming cancers invisibly in our body, just like we form pimples. If you saw a pimple on your face in a mirror, you pay attention to it. But you probably are forming pimples on your back and on your butt all the time. And you can't see them. So you don't pay any attention. And guess what? Your body takes care of it, makes it go away. Similarly, the cancers that form in our body are invisible because they can't grow unless they can't grow up unless there are certain factors, our shields are down before our cancers can actually grow. Now, I just want to give you, uh, give your, your, your um, uh, viewers and listeners a little taste of this. Now, if I told you that a mutation in your DNA of your cell actually could result in a cancer, all right, that sounds like, okay, well, how often does that occur, right? I wear sunblock, you know, uh, you know, I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke cigarettes, I should be safe, right? Wrong. And the reason is because those 40 trillion human cells have to divide, which means they have to copy paste each other, right? That's why we're still around tomorrow is because today we're copying pasting ourselves, right? And the old cells just kind of like go away or it's like dandruff, right? Kind of think they fall off our bodies um, or they get gobbled up. Um, and so we, we copy paste ourselves all the time. Now, if I gave you a one page document and asked you to copy it on a, on a, on a, on a laptop, um, 10 times, like a paragraph, you would get it probably a hundred percent correct. All right. If I asked you to copy it a hundred times, you might make one mistake. If I asked you to copy it 40 trillion times, you definitely will screw up a lot. And that's what happens in the human body. Just the copy pasting function actually causes mistakes. And do you know, in the typical human body, every 24 hour, how many DNA mistakes are made? Because this has been figured out. How many? You know, how many? Take a guess. 10,000 mutations, DNA errors are made every 24 hours. Wow. Let me come back to the question. How come we don't get cancer more often? Because our DNA, our defenses fix it. Okay. And when you actually have tiny little cancers that do manage to make it, what happens? Our other defense, our immune system, wings by, conducts surveillance like cops on a beat. You know, like cops patrolling a quiet residential neighborhood and the little microscopic cancer that's formed because it escaped looks like a drug dealer sitting on the street corner. You might not be dealing drugs, but you know what? Your immune system is going to put it in a paddy wagon and take it away, get rid of it. So the neighborhood stays clean. So this is what's going on in our bodies all the time. It's happening in children. It's happening in adults. Now, how do we know cancers actually form in adults? It's pretty staggering. It turns out studies have been done in women between the ages of 40 and 50 who died of 
accidents, accidental deaths, okay, or suicide. So they and they they do the they do the autopsy studies, and what they find is that forty percent of women between the ages of forty and fifty have microscopic breast cancers. Okay, forty percent. Now most of them are never going to have a problem. All right, because they're going to get wiped away by the immune system. Um, they don't have enough oxygen, so they can't survive for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe they may eat being diet that actually help to wipe it out. In men, they studied autopsy studies of men between ages and 50 and 60. 50% of men between ages of 50 and 60 have microscopic prostate cancers that will never turn into a deadly condition for them. All right. And it's because our body is forming these things all the time. And our defenses are taking care of them all the time. So why don't we get more cancer? Because we've got good health defenses. But to your point, you know, there is the, the one thing I think when people say, how come I got cancer? I, I did a little TikTok on this kind of trick question. I said, what is the most common risk factor for cancer? And it was like smoking, it was alcohol, it was, you know, family genetics. And then it was age. And the answer is age. Like that's, that is the biggest risk factor is when you get older to your exact point on the copy and paste. The example I use is back in the day when they were copying the Bible or any kind of big text, you know, they would have people under candle lit just all days and nights of the hours just like transcribe in ink the entire book because obviously there was no like, you know, printing and, and stuff like that. Right. And so how would you, if you knew that the letter just didn't make sense or the word didn't, you may question and say, well, this may be incorrect and, and know that that's scrap, that page is like, it's, it's, it's erroneous. But if things are, you know, could be different words and just a letter difference, you're only copying what you had previously. And so that's how these errors kind of like perpetuate. And to your point, and we've talked a lot about, you know, the immune system, like killing the cells and the inherent mechanisms, but you, you said it in a manner I hadn't heard yet, or I want to basically unenvelop even more, which is there is an inherent fail stop within the cell where we have tools that say blow up, something ain't right, hey, we got to do this. You know, when you talk about BRCA, like whether that's something you were uh, born with or it's something that happened over time, but that a BRCA problem is rep uh, on repair and crosslinks. But the big one that I want to talk, like, talk about for a second is TP53 is one of the the best, most important regulators to be like, beep, blow up, something doesn't look right. And when you have a problem with TP53 and something called Lee-Framini syndrome, so where you have uh, uh, a problem in your blow-up that's inherently in the cell, whether whether that was a transcription error and now it was it's somatic, meaning that you got that error during your lifetime or you were born with it. In Lee-Framini, you're born with it, and when you have that issue... It's literally up to like 50% chance of having a cancer or by, by 50 years old. It's so bad that you like actually are approved for a full body MRI every year because you, one of your main systems and mechanisms doesn't work. And you may say, okay, well, if it's not working, then how come they don't have cancer immediately? Now you're talking about something that's more of an external uh, regulation, which is you know, the immune system. So it's like, okay, if for some reason they inherit, like the properties in the cell didn't work, then you also have this entire other layer of people that are attacking things when something doesn't look right. When I speak, I'm always like, ingrates. We're just a bunch of ingrates, all of us. When was the last time we thanked our immune system to say, thank you for taking zapping this, 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 all those cancers? Because remember, it takes about 200 million cells to see it on like an average CT scan, right? 200, mil uh, 200 million cells. And so even if you get a scan that says 50,000 or 100,000, you know, uh, cancer cells, at that point, it has actually escaped 
the immune system, but, but well before then, well before anyone would have any inkling of knowledge, usually your immune system takes care of it. And that's why we learned a lot during, you know, unfortunately, HIV and AIDS, when all of a sudden we saw some of the most sinister, nefarious cancers come out because all of a sudden those lymphocytes, those CD, uh, CD4s and, and, or T-cells aren't able to attack like they're supposed to. We know what happens in mice models and, in, and unfortunately, in the case of AIDS and, and some other things, what happens when that outside of this intracellular uh, mechanisms basically provide an opportunity for something to escape. And that's interestingly why with the TP53 being in the cell, it's why elephants have an insanely low, and I know you know this, uh, insanely low like incidence of cancers because they actually, I believe where we have two, I think they have something like 10 to 12, like some insane number of these blow up uh, buttons. And I think something else, some large animal like sea, sea lions or there's these animals that exist that have an in, a much smaller rate because of the inside cell blow-up mechanisms. And that, I think, what you're getting to is why, even if that doesn't work, when the immune system fails and it's work that you're doing, like, very actively, which blows my mind as an internist and, and diet and nutrition, on basically re-enabling the, the immune system, I would say Harry Potter sheath, like that cloak, the Harry Potter cloak where it's invisible. They, you know, cancers have, find a way to put on the invisible cloak and then we have immunotherapies that pull it out, and all of a sudden that external policing system says, whoa, how did I let this go by? I say sometimes when you go to a house and you're having a party and someone walks by your couch and a dust ball comes out, like a lot of people are just like embarrassed, like, oh my God, like you think I don't like dust. And you do, you dust all the time, you just couldn't see it. And that was the mechanism to protect. And then all of a sudden you give a therapy that runs, you know, like blows it out, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I can see it again, and it's taken care of. And those are the some of the most promising, like, deep, you know, deeper remissions and kind of sustained control because you may, may, and we see that in melanoma in a stage four setting, those are the cases where we're most optimistic. Nobody can say the cure word anymore. It's a very, you know, society that's very, you know, rightfully so, like fragile about certain terms. But why? Why? Because all of a sudden, if you could get down to that last cell, that's, you know, conceivable that that colony of rogue cells has been taken care of. Sorry, I had to unpack all that stuff because you've said no, it's a, it's but. no, no. I, I I think that um, what you said is so true. I want to pick up on a couple of points that I think would be helpful to 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 chat about. One is this, you know, TP fifty three. Now, most people who are listening to this will it will be like you know alphabets, another bit of alphabet soup that two doctors are talking about, which I of course know exactly what you're talking about. But let me just tell you, it, it you know, it's a it's it's a marker a genetic marker that we can find in some people, in some cancer patients, usually. It's kind of like, you know, we do the CSI and discover what was the problem. And, you know, it's a smoking gun. So, uh, and, and you know, we, we call it TP53 as if that is the problem. In fact, it's not quite accurate. Like anything else that got us in the details, it turns out that P53, let's call it TP53, P53, that is actually known, same thing as BRCA, as a tumor suppressor gene, which means that normally, when it works normally, it's suppressing tumors, right. which is why when you have a mutation, a, muta a mutated TP53 gene, okay, um, that causes all kinds of problems because if you can't suppress it, then, you know, basically it hits the fan, right? right? Um, the, same the thing as brachial. The, like the blow up is like it doesn't work anymore, and you're like, oh exactly. my god, I can't Exactly, exactly. And so I think that you know it, it's layer after layer after layer. It's an entire solar system of defenses. 
that we have starting from inside the cell, then outside of the cell, then outside of the cell to our metabolism, and then from our metabolism into, you know, our exposure to the outside world. And so, you know, a lot of people say, well, what if I just don't smoke? Well, that's, that can be helpful. Right. That's removing something harmful to you. You know, that, that tips the odds in your favor, but you still got a lot of other things you got to take care of. You know, anybody who actually owns a house will appreciate this, right? If all you did was shovel the walk, okay, you didn't pay attention to the lawn, you didn't actually pay the bills, you know, uh, you didn't wash the dishes, your house would be a mess. And, and that's why I think that, you know, like we, to be healthy, it's not just working out and, you know, um, uh, and, uh, but there's and it, not just simply exercising, but there's all these things that can actually make a big difference. What you eat, what you, how you sleep, you know, wh- when you eat actually can also make it make a difference. And I want to bring it back to the, to um, metabolism for one second. So it turns out that if you have a good metabolism and your engine is running well in your body, I mean, you know, and like you buy a new car and you drive it off a lot, it just feels so good. It's so smooth. There's no noise. There's no creaks. Nothing's dragging on the ground. Um, but when there's a problem uh, in in the car and you don't pay attention to it, and you you know that little noise, little knocking noise, is still there a month later. It's still there, a little bit uh, louder. That's basically what happens. That can happen in our body if we don't pay attention to our signals. And when it's in, when that signal is inflammation and we've got chronic inflammation, okay, that is basically an injury, an insult inside the body, disrupting that solar system of defenses, uh, working against those hardwired suppressors of cancer. In fact, it's more like pouring gasoline onto the embers of a fire um, that cancers are trying to trigger. It makes it a lot easier for the cancer to go faster. All right. And that's why we talk about inflammation and people hear about it so often. But there's a medical reason for it. chronic inflammation, which you actually have when your metabolism is bad, when you have too much harmful body fat, when you've got metabolic diseases like diabetes, all those kinds of things. And by the way, it's not just big people, large body people, even skinny people can have too much uh, harmful body fat. It's packed inside. them. I, I always tell people this harmful body fat. It's obvious if you're looking at somebody who is clearly very large, but there's something called skinny fat. And, uh, and because there's different kinds of fat, you've got visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, subcutaneous fats, what hangs under your arms and your thighs and your butt. That's what women always talk about. That's not the most harmful kind of fat. The most harmful kind of fat is called visceral fat. Visceral fat is packed inside. It's like Indians, we have the worst pro, like we have, we all have visceral fat, man. It's, 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 it's so bad. Well, it's packed inside your shell. And, and the way that I explain it, it, it's fat that grows inside, it wraps around your organs like a baseball glove. All right. Another way to think about it is because you can have it in a skinny person as well, is that if you went to your FedEx and you're going to actually ship something across the country, like a, like a, like a glass bottle, okay. Or champagne glass. What are you going to do? You're going to take that thin box and you're going to pack it with peanuts, right? And 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 that way, if you didn't have any peanuts, it would break, right? So you need some fat. But if you decided to overstuff that box and really pack those peanuts in, all right, so much that it's actually pressing on the glass itself, and then you close the box and then you tape it shut, the box at arm's length is going to be skinny, but inside it's bursting at the seams, and that's what we can ha- that's what can happen. Visceral fat can grow in skinny, thin, lean looking people. And it's really, really harmful. And that's why 
one of the things I'd write about in my my new book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, is look, we want it, we do want to actually fight um, harmful body fat, but it's not really because you want to uh, get a beach body or or fit into a bridesmaid's dress. The reason you want to actually do it is because you want to tame that extra fat that can grow in your inside your body, and you might not even see it. Okay. Now, here's something, um, uh, Sanjay, you may not know that I discovered as as I was writing this book. That's that actually was so surprising to me that um, when I talk about it, it makes other doctors kind of like um, it, it makes their jaw drop. You know where uh, one of the first early places that um, fat accumulates when when you you know eat too much or whatever, eat, hard, eat don't exercise and eat too much food. Where does where do you think the first place in your body that the fat accumulates? One of the first places abdomen or face that's what most people would think turns out one of the earliest places that you accumulate extra body fat so this is normal body fat this is extra harmful extra fat is in your tongue your tongue really? can get fat not the front of your tongue not the athletic Cirque du Soleil part of your tongue not the middle of your tongue which actually um is strong the the front is is agile the middle is very strong. The posterior third of your tongue is marbled with fat like a ribeye steak. Okay. And what happens is when you gain extra harmful body fat, it accumulates. You get more ribeye, you get more fat in the ribeye. Okay. And how do we know this happens? Because when even skinny people, even slender people gain extra weight, you know, their bed partner might actually tell them. Hey, honey, you know, you're actually snoring. You didn't used to snore, but now you're snoring. What happens? You're sleeping and the posterior third of your tongue, when you're relaxed, sags to the back of your throat and you wind up having sleep apnea and you snore and you snort. It's so and funny. I have, like, I have like an eight to 10 pound, like not even, probably six to eight pound delta where my wife like will, will say when I start gaining weight over that, like that six to eight pounds, I will start snoring. And that makes perfect sense because when I'm below that, it's, 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 I don't. And it's, I'm like, it's so crazy to think aesthetically in the mirror, you can't tell, you know, anything different, but, but then I'll look at a scale and say, sure enough, that yeah. is absolutely wild. And that's why people listening, like, that's why, you know, I get a lot of consults for high blood levels, right? And they want to say it's polycythemia vera, which is basically a fancy term, which is technically cancer as a, uh, classified as a cancer because it's unregulated growth of the high red blood cells. And they'll say, well, I don't have sleep apnea. And then I do, you know, stop bang as a scoring system at birth. But the malapati, I don't think, I don't know that all the residents are looking at that now. I'll look in that aperture of the oropharynx. And if it, there's staging, if anyone's listening to this and you're like, I might have sleep apnea, I don't feel wake up restored. And you Google malapati score, like you will see like different stages and, and each debulking I did, two out of the four that I sent to ENT, I mean, I'm not cool enough to be a surgeon, never was. But uh, but if I, when I send it and they get that debulking surgery, they're not that obese at all. And it's like amazing, their sleep apnea, you know, machine needs are gone. But but to your point, so that, that that deposition, and as you were saying, you know, that inflammation causes, like it is a repel, uh, it repels the good kind of immune cells to, to attack. You might say, well, inflammation isn't that like your immune system. It's, there's inflammatory things that are signaled. 
but the calamity and the chaos cause a great smokescreen where basically, you know, these robbers on Netflix shows, they do this thing, they blow up the trash can, and they use that smog to go do their crime. That's essentially yeah. an environment you're creating when it yeah, comes to right. an inflammatory setting. That's the same right. way that, that H. pylori, that bacteria, now that is a bad bacteria, like it's it's not the H. pylori that causes the stomach cancers. It's it's the it's the calamity. It's that setting yeah. that makes it very opportunistic. And then you yeah. take the bug, and then a lot of times your immune system well, is like, I, oh, I can do it again. And, you know, I mean, I think that in communicating to patients and helping them um, clear up what might be confusing when they're searching around for information about inflammation, here's the analogy that I give. If we didn't if we didn't have the ability to have inflammation, we'd get infected and die pretty quickly. If you cut yourself, you know, the bacteria would come in. What our normal in the immune system sets up inflammation whenever there's injury or a trauma so that basically it'll send some first responders out there to wipe out any bacteria and to kind of make sure everything is clean and it'll heal right up. That actually is a good thing. And the problem with, with chronic inflammation is that it's kind of the good stuff that never quite goes away. And then when it's there present over a long period of time in a bigger and bigger way, that's the calamity you're talking about. Then the analogy I give is this. Imagine you're camping with your uh, with your family, and you know it's cool, so you build a campfire, right? It's inside the stone walls, and you're just going to have it to warm up and roast marshmallows or whatever, um, and, and get warm and tell ghost stories. That's actually good inflammation. It's you know you need a little warmth. You set up a good uh, campfire. You go back into the camp. What do you do before you go to the camp? You don't leave it burning there. You put out the fire. That's what you're supposed to do anyway. Um, that's what the rangers tell you to do. Now imagine. If that fire never went out, and not only did it not didn't doesn't go out, but while you're sleeping, it jumps. The flames jump out of the fire pit, and they actually get onto the forest floor, and it catches the forest floor and fire. Now the fire's out of the pit and racing through. That's what happens when inflammation races through your body, and it might be smoldering. It's just burning a little bit, little bit by bit. The whole forest is actually on fire, but you can't see it. It's just smoldering, smoking, or it could be a raging forest fire. Now you can't control it at all. It kills everything in its path and causes untold damage. That is a calamity. And so that's kind of one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand. Inflammation is good as long as it is temporary. Temporary. Inflammation is bad if it's runaway and, and you can't stop it. And it just gets bigger and and badder. And that's actually one of one of the problems. So the so idea, that, though, if I may ask, though, so when I when I do that, when I have patients that come in with like high, what's called granulocyte count or neutrophils, those are the ones that are chasing something, basically, you know, or or in uh, the African American population, sometimes like the counts are low, even though there's supposed to be inflammation. There's all kinds of you know very serendipitous things. But what I do is I check an ESR and a CRP sometimes to justify, which I liken, you know, to the, the inflammatory stuff. What is, is there anything else that's a reliable metric? Because I feel, I empathize a lot for the people that comment on my videos that are like, the doctor says nothing wrong with me. I, I don't want anyone listening to this to think that if you are told all your labs are normal, that there isn't a problem. And I, and that's, I think, a, probably a repeating concept for you. It's like, it's, you're, the, you're the hero that's saying, y'all, just because we're saying your labs are normal does not mean that you are not like justified or correct about something ongoing. How do we how do we unpack that naturally? Is that like is there is there labs to show other interleukins or cytokines or or because I know 
you know, they're right. Again, they're, it's maddening. They're like, I'm told it's all in my head. It's not in your head. We're very, very basic on our assessments on being able to talk about those things because at the end of the day, they're not fires we've got to put out right now. And so they weren't studied enough, I guess, at the beginning, you know? Listen, I, I think the cardinal rule of a good doctor, you know, like, I mean, we all have our own doctors. What I pay attention to is really somebody who is open-minded and listens to the patient. Okay. And that requires, you know, somebody that's willing to listen and not just talk at you, but really ask more questions. And, and we all know our bodies better than anyone else on the planet. And so when something isn't right with us and we bring it to a doctor's attention, I think it's that doctor's responsibility to really try to listen and register it. You know, gaslighting is just not acceptable to me as a physician. That's why we got a lot of them beginning. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the whole term gaslighting is really kind of blowing it off, saying it's in your head. And, and look, it certainly is in their head. But the question is, what else is in your body that's actually going on? And back to your point about blood tests, you know, those basic blood tests that, you know, the doctors order that we check the boxes are, you know, the Chem 10, the CBC, blah, 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 blah. If you even look at a doctor's uh, uh, computer screen when they're ordering tests after a visit, you know, there's a limited, very limited number of boxes that we actually check. And that same number of boxes has been the same number of boxes for like 50 years. Okay. I mean, we're running the same tests we ran 50 years ago. You know, I mean, look, we can send a rocket into space over and over again and land it back on the back, land it back on a boat. Okay. And the question is like, but we can't invent new blood tests. And so I think that there's a big catch up to do um, between what doctors are able to measure. It's the same thing like an EKG, you know, you do a cardiologist does an EKG or an internist does an EKG. Yeah, it looks fine. I swear, Doc, my, my heart's not working. It, it skips beats. Look, take it seriously. Let's think through what tools we have. Some of them are pretty primitive, but let's apply them anyway. And what's really exciting is that, you know, I think increasingly, especially with wearables that a lot of people have connected to their phones or their watches or something else you could put on, you can actually do better monitoring. I mean, you know, frankly, Even if you monitor 24-hour glucose, you know, with one of those glucose sensors for diabetes, you know, if you see your glucose, even though you don't have diabetes, your glucose is running off, you know, which can be found in your phone through the cloud, that could be a signal that your doctor is not measuring with that dipstick that they do the blood test every, whatever, six weeks or every year, six months, that there's something going on. And that might be the trigger for you to actually seek more attention. So I think that, you know, we're at this awkward time in medicine where we know there's more than we can measure. Patients tell it to us all the time. We're beginning to have better technology to be able to measure it, but it's not in mainstream practice yet. And so we're in this really, really awkward phase. And all I try to do for doctors who are listening is, you know, please listen to your patient. And 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 I think communicating that, you know, we're we're empathetic, we're listening, we'll try to figure it out. You know, there's no guarantee we can figure it out, but we're trying to figure it out. I think that's what patients want. They want the they want the honest effort to do this. And by the way, the other thing for oncology patients that I think is really profound is that, you know, every cancer patient that I've ever seen or had always asks, you know, after how bad is it? You know, what kind of treatments? How long do I have to live? You know, the usual important questions that are front of mind for somebody who's been diagnosed with cancer Sooner or later, they're going to come to you and basically say, hey, doc, what should I do? What can I do for myself? What should I eat? That is not taught in medical school. It's not taught in oncology fellowship training. 
And it's an get injustice that. to patients. Like, because you said it earlier, you said health is what's in between the visits. And we do a very bad job, just truthfully, except for people like you that are trying to you know, innovate this concept of doing the in-between on health. Like, we can tell you the things where you need to like, like you said, the the person that's doing the shoe with the nail, like, oh, you need a nail here. And we can put Band-Aids. But there's very little counseling. Well, I'm sure there's a lot out there today that I would love to follow up and provide links for people on where you can get the idea of health. And that's the in-between. And it went to another point where you said about the car, the performance of the car. The, the word performance really needs to be kind of like uh, delineated or, or expanded it on further. Because I remember when I was in shape in residency fellowship, at least aesthetically, right? Like I was like, had the, you know, it was just silly stuff, right? That you do that I'm so embarrassed about. But but people be like, oh, you're so healthy. So I'm like, I'm actually not healthy. Like I did very little cardio, right? Like I just like did intermittent fasting. And there were some aspects that I would say like, again, may look like you're in shape, but by no means could I like even run a couple of miles like most people, you know, watching this could without, without dying, I would, I would be dead. And so health is a very relative term that's being painted in a gazillion different ways. But to your point and, and to the overlying concept is it really is the way you have to have less visits in the future for all these like things that seem obscure or learning is not so obscure but you have to look backwards to see like what may have been the aggregate that eventually led to those things and so i know you're on a very tight schedule but i would love to know say i have a patient and say they want to know about health and so they're doing everything right the labs are good but they have these nettlesome things maybe i did as as far as as send them for a scope to see if they had some inflammation in their gi system it's negative what is and then maybe there's no good answer what is the overall modification I can make or discretion when it comes to diet uh, and exercise to effectively have a healthier kind of inflammation, um, uh, you know, polarizing, I guess, not diet, but lifestyle, and then reassess in six weeks. That's what I would do with the patient. I would say, let's do this. this now we're down here. We, we ruled out of the major things. I'm not saying nothing's wrong, but here are some of the things I want you to try, like a DASH diet for like low low blood pressure. Is there something that we could focus on lifestyle-wise for four weeks and say, let's see if you're better? You know, it, that's such a good question. And I write about this in my new book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, where I have a whole, ch you know, I talk about metabolism. I talk about a foods that can help your metabolism. And then I, I present kind of a, an approach, a strategy that you can, anybody can put into their lives. And, and, um, and it involves taking a look at the things that are not so good for you and uh, auditing that and actually trying to cut down or cut those out. And then starting to swap and adding in things that are good for your life. And in fact, you know, there's a whole chapter that I write about um, that I actually quote Bruce Lee, the martial artist. And the reason I quote him is because one of the things he said that I think is um, that he believed in uh, that was part of his training and part of his approach to martial arts um, was that, you know, you first need to know yourself. You need to understand who you are uh, first. And I think a lot of people just sort of want that quick fix. Honestly, if you had to, you know, kind of say there's something going on, let's check you out in six weeks or whatever. First, what I would tell people to do is to really take the time, and I try to help them, to audit their own lives. Um, what time do you get up? What time do you go to bed? When you get up, what do you eat? How do you cook it? Uh, what kind of brands do you actually use? Um, do you get exercise? You know, um, when do you exercise? And you don't have to work out. You can even go for a walk. What's your life actually like? And I think by getting to know yourself and being really honest about what you do and who you are, you know, change, positive change comes from first understanding what you're not, what, how you are right now. 
It's hard to change something you don't really understand. And so I think, you know, one thing to do is to really do this careful audit with diet. What are you eating? When are you eating it? How much are you eating, by the way? And how do you feel after you eat it? You know, we all have had stuff where, you know, you eat it and you don't feel that great. You still eat it anyway. You still, you know, like, uh, listen, med students are famous for that. You know, like <laughs> you're, you're, you're sitting in the library after gobbling all this stuff and, you know, like you just don't feel that great. And yet you still got to barrel on and keep on studying. And so the, the bottom line is listen to your body, audit yourself, and then make some changes. Swap out the things that, are, that aren't so good for you. So in both of my books, Eat to Beat Disease and Eat to Beat Your Diet, I have a list of foods that are actually not so good for you. Cut down or cut out. Like Notice I didn't say eliminate. Cut down or cut out because, you know, we're humans. We're actually going to be doing what we're going to do anyway. So just but be aware awareness, self-awareness actually is so very important. And then swap in some of the good things. And you start um, putting in like, so in my new book, I actually have a whole category of foods called slow down foods. These are foods that if you were to, and they've got a checklist next to it, um, you check those out or take a Sharpie and circle them. These are the foods that slow down your metabolism and cause inflammation. Okay. Figure out at the very get-go, at the very beginning, which ones you were already eating. All right. Look, you might keep eating them, but now you know what you're eating that's not so good for you, all right? And then I have a whole list called swap-in foods. These are the foods that actually boost your metabolism, help you lower inflammation, help fight excess body fat. And if you swap them out, take away the bad, add the good. And by the way, look for what I do. I, I go with preferences. Circle the foods that you already love, okay? Just quickly circle them, check them or, or circle them. And, and I bet you'd be surprised out of 150 foods that boost your metabolism, I bet there'll be a lot that you already are eating, that you actually like to eat. Start with those. If you start with the foods you already love, you're already way ahead of the game, okay? And then cut down or cut out the ones that you don't want to eat. And, you know, and also volume of food is really important. Um, you know, we are all, we all grew up in this country um, being, uh, I, I think, indoctrinated with this idea about the clean plate club. Clean your plate. Eat everything that's on your plate. Well, what happens if you didn't serve yourself? You know, the lunch lady put a slopped it on, or the restaurant server or the chef, they plated and they give a gigantic lump of food. You go to a Denny's and you get this gigantic, you know, all you can eat. All right. Hey, there's nobody that said you had to eat that. And so this, you know, kind of idea of listening to your body uh, and stopping eating when you're satisfied but not full. Yeah, it, it, I love what you said. And I think a bigger point to that is, is, when you do that, forget if nothing else, if nothing changed, which that's, you know, we have very little reason to believe that. But there's a fulfillment that comes with doing that. Just taking a look at yourself because it's, it, it endorses pride. Your headspace, your fulfillment on yourself. If you feel down, if you feel like I'm unhealthy or I just, you don't feel good about yourself. You're, that's because it's that thing that's collecting corner that, you know, in the corner of the garage, the car that you're like, I've actually never looked at it. And you're going to get fulfilled, I'm willing to bet, more than anything else, like by doing that, number one. That's, that's the big thing. And number two, you know, I had friends that down in the South, like they, they said, I did 4-H club. And I was like, what was that? And I'm like, my kids are going to mm -hmm. do it. I'm like, what is it? 4-H is where you had a, a, a sheep or a horse or whatever that you're going to show. And you every, like for four months, the whole summer, you pet it, you groom it. You, they're like, you learn to do so many things for this thing to show for one day. 
But the pride that you have, the pride alone, let alone that it looks pretty, presumably, or whatever they do, like, that in itself is a reward. And I think we all owe that to ourselves, like, because of the fulfillment, if nothing else. But number two, you're telling us it's things that you already like, you just don't know that you like it. You're like, well, you're telling me I can do more of this and, like, replace it with this? Yeah. So I think people will be surprised reading your list yeah. to find out that, that, that I just had no idea that this was something that, that's good, like, you know, that I'm going to include more. Dark chocolate, for example, you mentioned. Turmeric, everyone talks about, you mentioned. So I want people to know that a lot of these things are things you talk about. You've talked about soy because people want to know, but now you have direction like in your book. And this, this thing wasn't designed for your book. It was like a cancer thing, but I, I'm, I'm very intrigued and, and excited because I get so many questions and you've done, you put in a lot of work with this era of, well, what percentage of your diet is vegetables? What percentage are fruits? You were basically like saying, and I hope we all know, but that that is not a good enough question. Like it is not something so macro in the way we think of it, fruits, vegetables, one third, two thirds. It's a good start, a very rough good start, but it's, it's, it goes far deeper than that. I, if it's okay, I'm going to read your book. I want anyone listening to this read your book. I think we should all try it before we hopefully get you back. We didn't even get to talk about bitterness receptors and T2R receptors that stimulate, you know, like innate immunity and how that affects into... Or... We didn't get a chance to talk about the six grams of dietary fiber, which are present in an average size pair, has been shown by MD Anderson research to improve your gut microbiome and actually make the difference of whether you're going to survive melanoma, getting an immunotherapy or not, or the bacteria acromantia, which can be grown by drinking pomegranate juice or conquer grape juice or cranberry juice that seems to be present in every patient who is a positive responder. They benefit. They, the tumor is wiped out by your immune system in people who get checkpoint inhibitors for their cancer because we don't know who responds and who doesn't respond. We're beginning to find out that what you eat and how it happens to change the ecosystem of your diet, of your, of your gut bacteria, looks like you can actually make a big difference. And that big difference could be life and death. And so that's something I'd love to come back to talk to you more Please. about. Please. I literally said to my wife the other day, we, she got pears and I ate a pear and I was like, I love pears. I don't know why we don't get pears more often. I hadn't eaten one in probably two years. And this is an example of in the book. When I find that out now, if I'm walking by pears, you better believe I'm going to get those pears. But it just, you know, <laughs> the mind doesn't know what the eyes haven't seen. And number two, on the microbiome part, I just found out from Dr. Sandeep Patel at uh, UC um, San Diego that he said there's early literature showing like in pancreatic and some other tumor types, part of the reason the chemotherapy may not be effective outside of, you know, obviously everything's multifactorial, but is the microbiome and the bacteria you have around your tumor lesion can actually influence the amount or concentration or metabolism of the therapeutic delivery to the tumor. When he told me that, I'm like, bro, we already measure like BSA and weight and high and, and creatinine function liver. You're telling me there's a whole nother variable about something about just the way the bacteria metabolize things that also influence if you're getting dosed correctly or not. And he's like, yeah, I will tell. But it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, look, this is there's there's maybe maybe the big message for people watching this uh, episode is that. You know, science is um, very is a very positive force when it comes to medicine. It's something that is really beating down a path to finding better ways to overcome cancer and really restore health to people. I'll end with one quick story about my mom. Uh, my mom was 80 when she was uh, diagnosed with an endometrial cancer. Um, we removed her uterus with by surgery and gave her a little bit of spot radiation. And the pathology showed there was a little lymphovascular cuff, which means, unfortunately, it would look like a little tumor near blood vessels and lymph tissue. Lymph nodes were negative, but it looked like there was a little 
sign that the tumor is beyond the uterus. And, you know, with some radiation, brachytherapy is what we call it, you know, the, the choice, chances in an 80-year-old person that the cancer be coming back is pretty low, you know, sort of less than 10%, less than 5% probably. But in her case, in under a year, this thing came roaring back, rip-roaring into stage four cancer. Okay, it's everywhere, all right? And the oncologist basically who was taking care of her basically told her, look, you know, this is really bad. It's everywhere. And, you know, he talked to me, pulled the family members aside and said, you know, um, you know, this is pretty much game over. You know, the treatment, the chemo is not going to work and it's going to be a lot rougher on her um, than, than, than the disease. Why don't you take her on a cruise, um, uh, you know, while there's good quality of life? And I, I, I stare at this guy and I said, listen, I'm a researcher. I can, you know, you know, you know what I do for a living? Like I, I eat this stuff for breakfast because I'm all about the science and try to figure out like, how do we actually help individual patients find their way through this jungle? Like, you know, this is really about swinging from vine to vine to figure out how do you get out you know, like don't fall into the piranhas and avoid the anacondas and all that kind of stuff. How do you get through that jungle? And that's basically what every cancer patient faces. In, in my mom's case, and I really tell this to really um, project a message of, of hope and optimism and, and encouraging advocacy, self-advocacy. This is you fighting for your own um, life, really, um, is with my mom. Um, her oncologist wouldn't give her, you know, fancy treatments because he felt that she was too old. And I'm like, you know, that's not really true. Number two, I said, you know, we're in the era of personalized oncology. I said, can I have her tumor? You know, and he's like, well, we're, we don't really do the tumor sequencing. I said, I'll take it. Did so you I, I sequence I, it? Well, this is about almost 10 years ago. Oh, okay. um, and so uh, about eight years ago. So I, I, I had the tumor and I had it fully sequenced. And when, by diving into the, what we call sequencing a tumor, what we're really talking about is looking under the rocks at the genetics to see like, is there TP53 and all those other things we talked about, is there BRCA? So we understand everything. There's about 30,000 human genes. We can, we, you can use very sophisticated lab techniques now, the tests that are not yet routinely run, but we can do it um, to look at everything. And once you look at tumor sequencing and tumor genomics, really there's no secrets left in the cancer. Like everything is known. We might not understand everything, but we see we everything. We may not have a target, okay. but we know what's driving it. We know how it's escaping. Exactly. So in her case, we actually found one of the, um, one of the signals that would make her eligible for immunotherapy. We got her on, she became one of the first patients to get an immunotherapy, a checkpoint inhibitor for endometrial cancer. And what was really quite amazing in, in three infusions, each one about 30 minutes apiece, okay, um, we scanned her every three weeks apart. By the third infusion afterwards, when we scanned her, all the cancer was gone. Eight years later, she's got no cancer. We stopped treating after a year because we didn't know what we were treating. And, you know, she lives next door to me right now. And so I can tell like, you, literally I did what I said at the, last the beginning night. of this episode. I was like, with immune therapy, the unveiling, that's the one where you can hope for deeper missions. We're not supposed to take care of yeah, because exactly. it's unreal. And, and anyone listening to this, I want them to know that, that, you know, whether your marker was PD1 or PDL1, we've had, we have so many episodes talking about immune therapy. We have Keith Flaherty from uh, mm. Mass General as well that did melanoma and all that. But anyone, if you're a stage four cancer, a solid tumor, you've got to ask your oncologist, what is my MMR status or am I MSI high? That is, uh, for years now, an automatic qualification for an immunotherapy that mean, that because because having that feature, MSI high, I'm going to put it on this podcast, that makes you likely 
to have good efficacy from immunotherapy and it is missed all the time. And I love your message. I love your ending. It's beautiful. I especially like the part that you talked about empowering and advocacy. That's literally why we do this podcast. That's why I do my social media stuff. I want people, I'm a community oncologist. I know that I am like fallible. Uh, but but in a such a rapidly evolving field, I want everyone to have the information they need to go back and say, can we take a second look? What is my MSI? What is my, you know, you know, PD one or do I have? Uh, there's still people not getting sequenced for lung cancer for EGFR alpha, not even sequenced. Forget adding her to and all those other things that are. So anyway, the point is, listen, tune in, please follow Dr. Lee uh, William Lee. I cannot wait. I'm not kidding. I've never said this. I can't wait to read your book and. Um, I would love to have you back because we just have so much more to unpack here. Well, I, I would I, I would love to come back and we can continue this conversation by talking more in depth about, you know, diet and immunity and, and, and anti-cancer uh, treatments because it's not about food versus medicine. It's really food and medicine and all working together. Like that's really the tool in the toolbox. And anybody who wants to find out more about this, you can come to my website at Dr. William Lee, drwilliamleeli.com. Follow me on social at Dr. William Lee. And I run all kinds of things. I do master classes. You can sign up. They're all free. Come and join me. I, uh, you know, like I, I routinely try to bring new smoking hot information to people similarly to what you do, Sanjay, to, because I think that this is information that can change lives. People want to know it and they need to find trusted places to be able to find it. So yeah. um, thank you for doing what you do. Of and uh, I hope we can get to talk again. You're amazing. I really appreciate your commitment to that. I feel like it's our responsibility. I mean, the society gave us this. They gave us our education. They gave us the means. They gave us. And what you're doing is amazing. Thank you, Dr. Lee. I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.